Hi, I'm John Stevens. This is Matt Russell. And this is Pod Have Mercy. This is Pod Have Mercy. Today, uh, Matt, you and I are blessed to have in studio. Wow. At a social six distance. feet, we're very. The camera, I've decided, not only adds 10 pounds, but it also makes everything look closer. Um, so we are appropriately socially, physically distanced. And, you know, when we started this podcast, we really wanted to have conversations about what the church of the future looks like and how the church yeah. intersects in the world. And we mm-hmm. got mm-hmm. derailed really quickly by <laughs> COVID and pandemic, but some things are intersecting, especially as it relates to the conversations we wanted to have around race. But also now you think about this pandemic, yeah. it's bringing light a lot of things. So mm. why don't you introduce yeah. Cleve? I know you yeah. guys have known each other for a while. and Yeah, it's, it's really great to, um, um, to, to have Cleve Tinsley on the podcast today. Cleve is, uh, besides probably being uh, a person that has pushed me intellectually and spiritually and socially in terms of what it means to perform my faith in the public square, he has become, um, um, he's become someone that is a confidant and a person that I am doing my life with deeply in a way that is working out my own faith um, mm. with fear and trembling. He and I were... Um, got to know each other um, a few years ago when we started Project Curate and Cleve was in, involved in um, things within Black Lives Matters and uh, some other things within the city of Houston organizing around just uh, uh, bringing to um, to the consciousness, particularly within, uh, not just within the church, and but in that intersection of culture and church. And so, um, and our our paths crossed over uh, an event that happened with Alton Sterling and uh, mm-hmm. Philando Castillo. Um, and so, um, um, and we got to know each other. And so it's just, we can tell some of that story maybe during the podcast, but yeah. Um, yeah. Cleve, it's great to have you here. I know that you are a newly minted PhD from Rice University, right. um, that you are- Congratulations. Uh, Thanks, yeah. appreciate, it, appreciate it. It was yeah. a journey. Yeah. It was a journey. <laughs> that you are an ordained- um, um, Baptist minister uh, who is kind of uh, also on staff has been on staff at St. John's uh, United Methodist downtown as a uh, theologian and res- resident. Um, you're a writer. You're an activist. You're a husband. You're a friend. You are uh, one of the uh, best leaders and funniest people I know. That's so, uh, um, but yeah, I'm, we're glad you're here. Do you you want to tell us a little bit about yourself, or by ruined that already. <laughs> no, I mean, I think you <laughs> covered my eclecticism right on a bit all over the place. But I think, um, one, it's an honor to be here with you, mm-hmm. Matt. Of course, Matt's been a dear friend of mine for years, going back to 2016, more robustly. An honor to be here with you as well, John. Been following you guys for a while, of course, in the UMC Church. I also do met my wife through the UMC Church as well. And mm-hmm. so, just good to be here with you guys. It's one of the ways I think... Um, that I kind of work out my commitments to community and service, right? And so it's been an interesting journey to figuring out how to continually do that in the priestly prophetic sort of sage tradition, right? And so I I say to folks all the time is that we're always complex. I think where the great illumination of ourselves comes is figuring out how we live out our complexity in every social space we occupy. Mm -hmm. And so I look forward to speaking with you about a range of things. John, you said some things about the church of the future and COVID-19 and 
race. All these are things things relate to your original theme, though. Like, what does it? What mm-hmm. does the church of the future look like? Yeah. Mean. Yeah. I think COVID. I know it has us and our colleagues exploring that question explicitly, in light of the te- technological challenges and tactics we have to do. But I also think COVID just think I think it reveals. Uh, some of the ways that the sh- church needs to show up. And I, I'm happy to say more about that. I mm. uh, have my own thinking around that. About prior to COVID, I had my thinking about that. But now that we're in the midst of this pandemic and looking at issues of uh, social justice and racial justice and all these issues, I think it's a good time to be thinking about these questions. Mm. And um, really, as Matt knows, I had spent some time, I was fortunate to have critical distance from my engagement with the church as a minister for a while to think about what would my role be? How do I live into this to my own, uh, what I call um, black critical pragmatic mystic tradition of faith in which I'm a part of, right? <laughs> and how do, how do I both live into that in a more narrow way as an ordained Baptist minister, but also how do I live into that as a community calling, right? For, for me, it's a type of prophetic calling to continue to push toward these issues of justice and humility and exploring God's compassion. So, uh, yeah, so I'm excited to riff with you guys today. I'm glad to be here. I told Matt when you first, when you all first started, I said, man, I want to come on the show for no other reason. And I just love the name of it. Pod have mercy. I said, <laughs> I said, that, that was indeed, that makes me want to come already. I'm, I'm glad I, I'm, I was like, I'm mad. I didn't think of that. Like, but I'm glad you guys are doing it. So it's a pleasure to be here with you. Well, we're glad to have you. I, I know, um, Matt and I, have talked about some things with the two of us. We've wanted to have other people come and join us. Mm-hmm. And as I said, we, we got side of, sidetracked in some ways dealing with COVID, but yeah. there are things in the news now, there's a lot of things in the news, but particularly one of the things that struck me was, um, and I guess we can just start maybe here is this, mm-hmm. the, the racial mm-hmm. uh, disparity of how this pandemic affects mm-hmm. us in the United States. And I was, reading an article and they, that black Americans, for example, are contracting and dying of COVID at wildly disproportionate rates. I was just looking at one state, for example, mm. was Wisconsin. Mm. So Wisconsin has 5.8 million people, right? They've had 500 deaths. Only 6% of Wisconsin are African-American. Mm. And yet half, 50% of the deaths an African-American. There's other examples like Chicago, 30% of the population African-American, 70% of the deaths. In Richmond, Virginia, every death has been a black life. Yeah. So that opened up a lot of doors around conversations about health care. And, you know, you and I talked about this a little bit, but, you know, one of the things, we want to bring someone in the room that has a different kind of connection than we do. And to listen and to hear, you know, we, we read the things and see the things about the health um, uh, system, the disparities, the food deserts, the way people live in the communities together, all these sorts of things. And these are not just COVID-19 things that started in 2020. Right. Sure. They right. date back to, you know, I was a history major and did a lot of study in history in the South. And you find that as soon as Reconstruction starts and African-American lives, that their health care no longer leads to profit, hmm. then hmm. it's like that's not, is, that's not important anymore. Yeah. So it's, yeah. this has been something that I think is, it's systemic, it's deep, and it's been around for a long time. Yeah. And so when you see these things come up, for some people it's surprising. 
Yeah. For some people, it's yeah. not. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I think you 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 hit on a there's a popular term going around now during this time. Talk about black comorbidities, right? These yeah. kind of other social realities that exist for black and brown fact folks that make the pandemic just <coughs> its effects at least just. Um, highlight, really exacerbate some of the issues that already have been around, whether it was mm-hmm. inequality as it relates to access to health care or really health care itself, right? There is wide evidence now that, for instance, black mothers, for instance, saw uh, when they express uh, how they need to care for themselves, they have to go through extra kind of efforts to make sure that they get proper testing. For instance, this hit us personally. Um, my, my partner and I, uh, her sister rather, recently had an issue and they typically when you go, you get these x-rays ran. She had to ask for a CAT scan because they presume, may have presumed certain things about her. So she had to ask. So this kind of way that we have to advocate for ourselves already in healthcare is an issue. But John, something you hit on already, especially, we see it especially in these urban areas, right? Whether it's Milwaukee, whether it's Detroit, whether it's New Orleans, whether it's Houston, rather. I mean, I think the population, uh, about 13%. African-Americans comprised the American population, about 70% right now of the 100,000-plus-some deaths have been African-American. New York Times ran an article yesterday right. listing a 1,000 of these folks and yes. enumerating some of these things. Mm. But I think you hit on it right. These are not new issues. I just think what this does is just kind of show how blacks and brown folks are overrepresented as it relates to those who are considered, quote-unquote, essential workers, right? Um, those who are say capitalists are own entrepreneurial business, they're not the ones on the front lines having to deal with that. To be the ability to be able to social distance itself is a privilege when you look at some of these communities, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, I reside in Third Ward now and many of them, the neighbors uh, <laughs> or friends I have in that community don't have an option not to take public transport on the bus to kind of social distance in a certain way. Um, so all these things just really highlight, I think, uh, things, ways that people of had to negotiate inequalities as it relates to space, geography, where they live at, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, not to mention sort of economic factors as it relates to uh, whether or not I have insurance at all. Am I scared to go to the doctor because um, I don't want to be exposed to it? And can I afford these bills? I mean, if it costs $10,000 if I have insurance to see somebody, what are these bills if I happen, uh, God forbid, I have to go on a ventilator? Mm-hmm. All these are factors that folks are considering and have to consider in these communities. Sometimes I think a lot of us take it, um, just take for granted that these things might exist. And so, uh, but I think all these, and we'll be discussing this later on in the week on a consultation we have is, these are things that are just not happening large writ. I think the question for us as religious leaders is in, you know, what kind of moral responsibility do we have? What's the call for us as a community to kind of respond to these issues? And what ways can we leverage our uh, position on this social matrix to make a difference, if at all. And I think that's a question that's fundamental to every church. Yes, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a question I think uh, black churches, quote unquote, who have kind of emerged over since Protestant history have to answer in one way. But I also think it's a responsibility, especially for white progressive, white evangelical, whatever uh, church one considers oneself uh, to respond to his way as best as they can. I think that's the, ta- that's the kind of goal for us to figure out. If we are to lean into the kind of zeitgeist of this moment, if we can kind of spiritually discern, how can we contribute based on where we located? 
I think that's the work we're called to right now to think through about. Yeah. Right mm-hmm. yes. yeah. Yeah. And that <clears throat> that response, I think, um, has been really interesting to see because there's still um, there's resistance a lot of times in the white churches to begin to look at those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and and um, but as we do, um, as the white church does that, there is this this immense amount of both kind of, I think, freedom. And then as John and I've been talking about the church of the future begins to open up. Mm. Our inability to say, "Wait a minute, what's happening here?" Yeah. Um, how yeah. do we how do we work towards a more equitable future right. in that regard? Right. Whether it's with health, whether it's with school, whether it's with economic kind of um, 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 pathways um, right. to freedom, um, the, all of those things are bound up together. And I think that those for the church have a spiritual root about mm. liberty. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah. I know that you have. Um, in your own kind of journey um, in terms of your own um, life and then also your teaching in terms of kind of uh, your black theology. Could you kind of talk about how some of that informs the way you think, informs some of the way that you hold um, kind of your own thoughts and space and activity in that that regard? Yeah. I I would say like, first, I think we're always evolving how we're thinking about these Mm -hmm. things. I think what drew me back... um, from what I call a broader type of community organizing into specific uh, kind of prophetic priestly type of organizing was the, a, a, a deep appreciation for tradition from which I come, right? Yeah. Uh, grandmothers from Union Decatur, Mississippi. However, folks like Hannah Lou Famer, who's from that area, mm-hmm. was there. My dad organized with SNCs in the 60s at Tougaloo College. <laughs> of course, some of the cultural heroes for us at the time uh, and she rose with folks like Ella Baker or Martin Luther King. And so uh, while I also have I've always had like deep love and appreciation and critical perspectives of the church. I also recognize that there's something there for me, right? What does that mean? Mm. Over the last couple of months, I come to recognize it's like, you know, and it's not new, right? I think what movements, whether it was Black Lives Matter or Me Too or what all these movements did is help us to understand that one, we need to recognize that cultural differences are not something we should fear, but we should learn to appreciate each other and learn from each other. But also, um, I think the hardest work to do is to discern what have churches done well, though? And I think what churches have often done well is what? They've mobilized folk world around a range mm. of social, political, theological issues, yes. right? Where it's not done so well, though, is really respond uh, to the different tactics and strategies of these movements as they arose. Mm. And so for me, this deeply is informed for me. One, I think, first for my own formation in black evangelical spaces. I call myself now a recovering black evangelical, right? <laughs> um, but it, but that early formation for me was important, right? Mm-hmm. So it was a bit of different kind of formation. One, I was engrossed in a black community church in the midst of Acres Home here in Houston, Texas. That was my mm-hmm. first experience. I'm like late teen, going into my early 20s. I was out here as an engineer or whatever, and uh, I started going to this church to a progressive young black pastor, and they really were bent on social consciousness. They had to be in Acres Homes. At this time, this was before Sylvester Turner ever became thought about being mayor, but folks like Sylvester Turner, Derek Muhammad, all these folks are from this area. And so we, I, I kind of knew of these folks way back then, 96, 2000s or whatever. And so I always had this sense of call to humanity and to community about what mm-hmm. does service mean. And for me, once you profess that in our setting, we typically automatically assume, hey, all right, you called a preach, right? So my formation <laughs> was a bit different, right? <laughs> and so like before seminary, and I'm glad I had this experience before any theological training, so to speak. So like I said, yes, I just said, listen, man, um, 
I don't know what's going on. I just know uh, I feel like, you know, a sense of vocation to work in the mission of the church forever. Now, I don't know if this means your church or somebody else's church. I just want to talk to you about it and see what that means. And he just stopped and looked at me. He's like, okay, what are you doing? I said, right now I'm doing engineering and other stuff. He's like, okay. And six months later, he said, hey, Cleve, I want you to start sitting somewhere different in the congregation now. So there's this, in our tradition, this thing called apprenticeship, right? And so all of a sudden I'm sitting up with all these other ministers who've been in ordained ministry. For, Here I am, this young kid, sitting there like, okay, you know. Next thing I know, three months later, Cleve, all right, you're going to be preaching your first sermon. I said, okay, so how does one do that? So <laughs> I don't come from a legacy of preacher, so I end up going to the Baptist bookstore off South Main there and just getting a book on how to prepare sermons, right? And here I am, six months later, I'm just doing this child sermon or whatever. Made it through it. I remember the title, although it was horrible, right? Some called Broken Cisterns or something like that. I, what I was conceived of was great. The delivery, I'm, pre I'm pretty sure it sucked like crazy, but I was excited <laughs> at the time, right? Um... So they just started trajectory me. So next thing I know, I'm one year into this, like, hey, I'm serving community through the church, Black Baptist tradition. And next thing I know, I'm marrying folk, I'm baptizing folk. Then I get called in the middle of the night, hey, you preaching tomorrow. I'm like, okay. You know, and, and you so, still have a day job then, right? Yeah, this guy have, have a day job yeah. then. So this goes on for about a year before I actually go on staff. I say I like uh, to say this, though. Like, you know, there was something about that community, though. There is a yeah. way that these loving black communities that go back into like, you know, uh, reconstruction area or whatever. There was a way of kind of forming and shaping young ministers or young persons who felt committed to community that they were patient, they were rigorous, mm. they did as best as they could with whatever resources we had it. So that was my early experience, right? And it was only later on where I said, hey, I want to be more informed about what I'm doing. I went to seminary and I encountered, really it wasn't, it wasn't until I was 31 to I encountered folks like James Cone, Dolores Williams, these other theologians who helped me wrestle with the notion of God in different ways. Cone's theology, William Jones, the guys I mentioned, these folks began thinking about, listen, you can't think about the symbol, the name, the narratives of God if you're not thinking about uh, how this God requires us to live in a just society. And if mm -hmm. you can't think about just societies, if you're not thinking about the justice of black people, not just Cone, but other folks as well, you know, Paulo Freire, you got these folks like... Yeah. All kind of folk, all these theologians that, for the first time, Gustavo Gutierrez and his predilection for the poor. So it was only when I got exposed to these different lens that I said, oh, okay, there's an entry point here. Uh, because, you know, in most of these evangelical traditions, there's certain folks that, even in black churches, they listen to, right? It's all Lifeway. It's all John Stout or some other folk, right? It wasn't <laughs> until I went here that I got exposed to these other folk. And I'm like, oh, there's a different kind of entry point. So that led me uh, to really... That space, at least in seminary, began began for me a time where I began to have the space to kind of think about what does it mean uh, for one to, to be socially committed to a type of way of life and also be a person that uh, struggles with these in community with other folks. Mm. Yeah, yeah. You know, in the, in the Methodist tradition, people have always, you know, our, our DNA is education and welfare and mm. health mm. and all these. I remember... Years and years ago, having lunch with Millard Fuller, who was one of the founded Habitat for Humanity, and he was mm. Baptist. Mm. And he always appreciated the Methodists are the ones that will come out and build the houses. Mm. But I say all that because uh, Methodists have always had this uh, social theology, but I don't know in American religion that Methodists have done a good job with it, with the racial components of our faith. 
Hmm. So justice for us looks like feeding yeah. 60,000 people yeah. at the food pantry in Fairhaven. Yeah. Uh, we don't we don't miss a beat. We don't even think about it. It's just what we do. But when you start having conversations about uh, Ahmad Arbery or you hmm. start having conversations about the inequalities about mortality with the pandemic, it, I think what it does is it peels back a level of, I don't know, there's this, I call, I, I don't know what the right words are, but there's this uncomfortable mm. sense within white community because we know there's an issue there, but there's always a way to try to, yeah, like yeah. to explain it away or to, well, we can't judge that police officer because we don't know, yeah, or yeah, we can't, yeah. you know, we don't know. And then all of a sudden, like even in this, in the Arbery thing, this immediate uh, response to try to paint him in a negative light. Right. Uh, right. It's, it's just, there's stuff at such a deep systemic level that we're not even aware of. I mean, our history is, um, you know, uh, it's around conferences and jurisdictional conferences and mm, mm. Uh, what were central conferences mm. were rated it were rooted in uh, racial uh, it was it was completely racial issues yeah the central conference was you know the black folk had their conference and their bishops and mm-hmm. the white folk had their conference and their bishops even though they were in the same city or the same location wow um, and even the United Methodist Church mm-hmm. tells us our history of coming back together after the racial divide, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so well, doing away with the central conferences and bringing everything together. But I've, I've seen it, you know, I'm South Georgia mm-hmm. guy. And when it's new church start or investing money, you know, you take these, some of these cities and there's a large percentage of African-Americans that live in Macon, Georgia, Savannah, Georgia, Columbus, Georgia. And yet we put the energy and the resources into the north part of town or the suburbs where we can plant a church that can sustain itself or whatever they think, you know, this new uh, warehouse box church. And it's typically white. I I, I just think, I don't know what I think. Mm. I'm dumbfounded because I I mean, as a, as a white man, I realize I'm, as I'm 50 now, I realize there's so many things that I just never thought about or took for granted, mm, mm. you know, where I, where I am, my job, my position, you know, I think we all struggle with just being honest. And that's the thing Matt and I talked about is just, mm-hmm. I think the big key is humility and Christian love is rooted in humility and humility listens mm. to other voices. You may not always agree, but are you willing to listen and sort of set your assumptions aside for a while Mm -hmm. and let someone else teach you, you know, to hear the voices in other ways. And uh, last thing I'll say is when I was in college, I was a history major, I mentioned, but the best class I think I ever took in my life from theology school or anything else was a class called uh, historiography. Mm -hmm. And I remember doing a, a, a thesis paper, you had to do a paper and you had to go do research. And they teach you about primary sources, secondary sources. Well, what happened was when you go back and you study the primary sources to try to make your case, you realize not all the voices are represented. (laughs) So when I do a a research on Sam P. Jones and the temperance movement in Mm. Cartersville, Georgia, and all this Mm. sorts of things, you know, the only stuff you're reading is from white historians. And so I remember when I was at Emory, 
in, in theology school, there was now the conversation started opening up about, well, let's go back and read this book of Ruth mm. and let's look at Orpah who decided to go back to her people. Mm. Why was that a horrible thing? You know, if you read it from the, and so there was a Native American mm. uh, theologian who revisited Orpah instead of being this negative character, there was like great value. And I thought I'd never even thought about Orpah before. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think, I mean, so, I mean, you, you hit on the issue of sources for doing our theological thinking. I mean, it's important. Yeah. I mean, uh, Matt and I have a colleague, uh, Dr. Vince Bantu, who just recently moved to the city, who does work on uh, Eastern Orthodox religion, African religion, and talk about some of these understandings of sources. But you, I mean, you said a lot, but I, I think nothing you said is new, right? This mm -hmm. tension these churches have always had, these divisions and split, have always been there. And I, I've said to some of our colleagues all the time is like, we have to be willing to wrestle with these tensions. I Meaning, there is yeah. both a sincere aspect to religious struggle, but there also is a sinister side. And I think the sinister side comes in uh, when it comes to issues of type of arrogance and certitude. Right? You're right. When Matt and I met, we used to have long conversations about hmm. um, the terms on which we use the converse. I mean, right. on what grounds are we going to have these conversations set? Yeah. Right? And we used to wrestle through. Uh, how we would address certain concerns about how whites would say, well, it's not said in a way I can hear it. Or what about peace and holding hands in prayer? What about reconciliation uh, before hearing some of the uh, undercurrents that kind of set the frames and templates we want to use yes. to overlay the issues on, right? Yeah. And so like you said, being willing to listen is a hard thing to do, especially when you've always had cultural power, right? And institutional power, right? It's hard for somebody who's had institutional and cultural power to then say, you know, let me just sit and admit that I may not know something, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And though we all, I mean, we all wrestle this in, in, in our own context, in our own way, myself as a cisgendered black man, uh, it's hard for us to sometimes to appreciate the perspectives that come from different ways to mm -hmm. learn and grow from them. And so uh, I, don't, I would say, I say I like to say it's not a new problem. I think we've always had these tensions and these divisions and divides It's part of the stuff that humans do and when we begin to mistake uh, our institutional kind of work for the work of God sometimes is where we really mess up, right? All of these institutions are just things that we've created to as best as we can make sense of the world uh, with, uh, with, while grappling with the divine. But when we start replacing our institutional authority and uh, the stakes we have in it for it being itself, the work of God is where we mess up sometimes. Mm. And um, I just think being open for me to listening to community, learning. You don't, you don't learn how to move in these communities at first um, until you've sat with it for a while. I didn't understand a lot of the movements that are going on right now, but I had to be willing to learn. I, I mean, I'm a, what you call an exennial, right? I'm on the edge, I'm a Generation Xer, right? Mm -hmm. Hangs with a lot of millennials or whatever, <laughs> right? However, I had to sit back and learn, right? It, I didn't just try to jump in. I, I had to figure out what's the best way for me to contribute to uh, what I hear coming from these folks and then what kind of skill set and capacity do I have to contribute in a way, right? I have a skill set. They have a different kind of voice. Their tactics and strategies are new. So I need to listen and learn what those are and learning those new community language. I think the great work for us spiritually, intellectually is saying, ah, here's where innovation happens is when I, John, can figure out how to use my own skill set as an institutional leader a CEO who knows how to move systems and people in places yep. to arrange people and put them in the right space 
to where I use my skill set to open up room for other folks to move, that's when this church transforms, mm-hmm. is when I learn how to use my skill set to allow others to kind of feel empowered and move around. Mm-hmm. And I think that's our work now. It's like, because we're getting older, we're out the game. <laughs> Truth of the matter is, we got to make room for other folk, right? Yeah. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Uh, yeah. So how do we do that? That's, that's Some days we're ready to make room quicker Yesterday. than Yesterday. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Exactly. <laughs> now, I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, in, in bringing Matt back, but also not just bringing Matt back to Chapelwood, but the things that you all have been involved in that you've helped birth together with Curate and Iconoclast being more closely connected to yes. Chapelwood. Yeah. To me, there's an invitation to say, we need to move in some new directions. We need to have some new yeah. conversations. Yeah. We are a, a church. Chapelwood's a very unique church because we have all these different worship communities mm. that reflect different types and experiences of whether it's Hispanic community, Latino community, or recovery community, mm. or, you know, Christian attempting in the upper room to have this very multi-ethnic, multicultural yeah, yeah. type of experience. And yet our big main campus here is in a very wealthy yeah. kind of uh, secluded neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. And I just don't think, I think the, the church of the future and the world that we're living in moves us to a place. It doesn't yeah. matter where you're located. That's you're going to have to live into the 21st century. That's right. Wherever you are, you're going to have to be open. You're going to have right. to listen because if you're not, you're just going to continue to become ineffective and meaningless. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think you all's model is pretty powerful though. Like, I mean, I think mm-hmm. there are ways that there's huge potential in that to have these various communities while recognizing I have this central community. I said, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I think that's powerful. And there are ways that I think good. Like, I'm glad Matt's over here as well. I know we're excited as a team to kind of partner with you all on things because the possibility is amazing. Yeah. You can offer exposures for folk who say they want it, right? While meeting the different needs these communities might have. And so yeah. I, I think it's a rich opportunity. Yeah. yeah. And that it's rooted in a local church, which is so important to what we're doing because yeah. I think a lot of times these things come at had it from the side of either kind of this uh, social activism or from the academy or from the other places. But it's been the local church that has shaped like our understanding of what it means to be human, what it means to live in a world that the kingdom of God might be kind of breaking into and forming. Uh, And so that the local church be a place that's the epicenter of this kind of activity in a city like Houston seems to be um, um, something that kind of generates a lot of energy for me, you know? And I think about the language that we talked about before. I want to pick up something you had said earlier. It's one of the the journeys I've been on has been on on a journey of language Mm -hmm. that has opened Mm -hmm. up space um, for uh, other ways of thinking. And so kind of kind of growing up hearing words of uh, um, around racial reconciliation mm-hmm. that really formed me as a, mm-hmm. um, as a kid in the Methodist church as well, going to the Wesley Foundation and realizing that, you know, it's racial reconciliation that God was after. Um, having um, been in this work with you and, um, and folks within the city, I began to realize that there was limitations to that understanding of reconciliation. And could you... Could you help, could you talk about that just a bit, about um, 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 some of the limitations of that and some of the ways that that might break into yeah, something yeah. different? Yeah. So I, I, think, I, th- I think you said something that's key, though, is that, uh, and this is the conversation I have with religious communities or those of us who still self-identify as Christian as well, is we all belong to language communities, mm-hmm. right? And so mm-hmm. 
uh, the doctrine of reconciliation itself about yeah. human nature kind of merging with some transcendent nature. There's nothing in itself. I mean, we get that, but that's kind of a what uh, a cultic type of understanding, right? Those of us who inside understand that. Right. But when we begin to talk to folks who are outside of this community, uh, right, what is it? What does it kind of say? In some kind of ways, if we're not careful, we can be saying, well, the problem is we just all need to get along and get on this page. And oftentimes folks who have been on the underside of power have often have taken the brunt of that, meaning uh, the problem is with you. You need to kind of fix yourself and get on the same page mm -hmm. and then we'll come along. So racial reconciliation becomes a problem because, uh, I mean, I always say this line to Matt. I said, you know, <laughs> what epic in history do you think any racialized group wants to go back to? Historically speaking, right? Well, you were a little more pointed with me one time. I, well, I, yeah, remember, but this is a, this I was a PG using show, that language so like a lot when we first met. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Occasionally PG. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, PG. But when we first met, we used to have strong conversations about this, right? Because <laughs> I'm like, you keep saying this stuff, man. And like, yeah. listen, like, that doesn't work for me. Yeah. And so we both had to, but I also had to come to an understanding as well about, you know, it worked both ways for me. Like, I also mm -hmm. both appreciated um, conceptually what that does in a schema, but also like, part of my own training as a scholar of religion is to recognize that these categories and these terms have meanings for particular communities and, yes. and particular set of power relations. And so we have to be able to disentangle mm. this stuff and put it back together. You got to be both constructive and deconstructive to mm -hmm. say, if yeah. I'm meeting with community members out here who don't buy into the same language said, how can I talk? Right? So what does it mean for us, John, then to have a conversation with somebody who has not been formed in the church? And so the salvific power of community that we both all subscribe to, right? There's a different way of understanding yes. that out there. And there's, there's a different kind of code that that's, that's spoken to. And so when we use terms like reconciliation, I think folks just need to try to be more precise and clear with that. And the challenge has is it has a connotation and baggage to it now because the way it's been used mostly by white, white evangelicals or whatever, uh, and I use that term loosely, right? We can talk about terms. But how it's been used is like, listen, this is the method and way this is going to happen. And oftentimes what that means is, folks, we, you got to buy into a certain system before we can even talk about what it means. I don't want to address power. I want to address being here. Some kind of way there's been disfragmentation. There is uh, a type of deficiency that you all have, right? And so that's, a, you know, I don't want to call any names here, but that, these are the problems I have with these large models of reconciliation. They always, they presume something, right? Mm. Uh, and also when... Folks of color who are brought into these larger conceptual models, if you look at them, uh, they always have something else at work in them. And they kind of, um, they forestall conversations about structural and systemic inequality hmm. to kind of say, no, this is about, and it kind of buys into this whole Western notion of individualism about if you just get in the right kind of sphere, which oftentimes means white sphere, then it all work out. And so these are complex conversations that people got to be able to have on safe terrains. And I think that's where our work in Project Curie comes in. Listen, we tell people, listen, we're not trying to, you know, do what you do at the church, do what you do in the community. We're trying to create a different kind of uh, social, intellectual, cultural space where you're safe to have yep. hard conversations. But the goal is something else. The goal is that you might create some kind of collaborative or coalition, if not else. We don't all have to agree, but we got to recognize that regardless of how folks talk about this stuff, we're all concerned about this. What? Yeah. Uh, that we all have equity of opportunity, if not outcome, right? Uh -huh. And these are challenges I think happens, but we got to first have a space where we have these conversations. Everybody's not 
fortunate enough to go out way, get theological training or go to other school, go to grad school, whatever. But we have to create these alternative spaces to have conversation, but where communities of color will push back and say, like, it got to be more than just conversation. Yeah. You know, white folks are great. You want to you have coffee all the time and have conversation. What are you going to do? <laughs> We're drinking you know coffee you know right now <laughs> and having a conversation. <laughs> right. what ha- look, but what happens after the damn podcast, right? That's right. That, that, these are some of the questions that uh, you'll get from those who have been working in these communities more, right? Because yeah. the same kind of questions they pose to us. How do you come at, I, I, I know in, in I, I don't put myself out there at, at all as any kind of person who's done this work well or done it as much as needs to be done. But I do know when you're around these conversations and you start having this, it's like there's a lot of defensiveness that rises mm-hmm, up, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, whoever's being talked to, uh, they want to justify so many things. It's like, well, we're not as bad as, as that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or and I and I think you know it, just plain spoken. I think when I see how white communities or white churches when we when we struggle with this, you know, there's a part that immediately we go to a defensive place. Mm. Um, I don't even think we're aware of all the like we talked about some of the systemic yeah. things that are in place, right? Uh, that are even at work, uh, but we immediately get you know defensive. I, I, I don't know where that comes from. I mean, is, you know, defensiveness, yeah. it doesn't seem to be a power move. I don't know. Or is it, it was mm, a compensation. Mm, mm. I'm, I'm just now, I really yeah, am curious yeah, yeah. because like, it's like one of the things uh, that people talk about is, well, Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in our country. And I've been in conversations that said, you know, Anybody is welcome, but not everyone will come. Yeah, yeah. You know, I love going to Windsor Village to worship when I can. Mm-hmm. I love worshiping there. Yeah. But I know that there may be some people from Windsor Village that would come to chapel and go, yeah, this ain't doing it for me. Mm-hmm. And I don't know its style of worship or culture or, or what. It's, or maybe it's just you when you go, it's like, there aren't people that look like me. Mm-hmm. I remember when I first mm-hmm. time I went to Windsor Village when I moved here six years ago or so, and Kirby John knew I was coming, and I sat in the back, and afterwards uh, I texted him and said, man, you did a great job. It was Father's Day, the first year we were here mm-hmm. in 2014. Huh. And he said, why'd you sell all the way in the back? And I said, well, how'd you know I was in the back? He said, well, you're the only white folk in the room. <laughs> you know, He said, you should have come set up front. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's just... I don't know. I don't even know what I'm trying to ask. It's like people point to this thing and people get defensive. I think I've gotten defensive before. It's like, well, not everybody's going to like the same kind of worship, but is that Mm -hmm. racial or does it have to happen on that Sunday morning? To me, we point to that hour and I'm thinking, well, let's talk about all the things that go on for how many other hours are there in the week? Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. You know, and if we were better at figuring out the racial stuff, on all the other hours, then I don't know that we'd be so overly consumed about oh. who's in what building on, on that one hour on Sunday morning. Mm. Yeah, I think it's a confluence of factors, right? I don't think it's yeah. any one issue. On, on the one hand, um, I don't think there's anything wrong with folks self-selecting experiences that work for them, right? Mm. On, the other, on the other hand, I think it's a broader conversation about inclusion versus diversity as well. Like, So like one... A church has to live according to their intention, right? If, I mean, there are certain reasons why 
Um, I go to St. John's United Methodist. Specifically, there's a type of evoking of community for me that resonates with me, right? Mm -hmm. However, those other folks, I mean, there's no monolithic to blackness or anything who who might want to come to chapel with others. I think folks need to choose communities that work for them. Mm -hmm. I think... And so for me, Sunday, the Sunday morning hour is not the issue for me. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, I think folks need to go. But, to you, but it becomes a big talking point. Yes, because it, it has been his talk, yeah. talk, talking point. But I think now, like, it used to point to issues of segregation and access to space, right? Mm-hmm. A point when uh, black and other folk couldn't participate the same way in worship communities they were. Now, uh, folks are able to kind of participate and choose belonging where they want to. And what's happened is, depending on one's formation or affinities, right? they choose worship communities that are right for them. And I think we need to be okay with that. First, you know, like, and a lot of, I disagree with a lot of my co- colleagues in this regard, like, you know, multi-ethnic churches are a great thing to say, but unless your service, your ritual activity is suffused through with this kind of ethnicity, it's not really that. You just have diversity there. Mm-hmm. But if I go long enough, whether it's, uh, denominational affiliation alone, there's something that's a dominant perspective, right? Whether it's in your music, what you preach, who you cite and who you preach, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that may, so you may have a diverse church, meaning I have different bodies that make up my congregation, but it's not really inclusive unless I've thought about inclusivity all the way down from the representation of my leadership, the symbols and sounds that we hear, <clears throat> uh, the messages that we preach, the authors that we cite, the interpretations that we read, mm-hmm. right? And so that's a very hard work to do, and pr- folks have to really think about that. I admire folks doing it, like Christian Washington with his church or whatever. But as well, I also think like folks don't need to like have these greater panics about, well, we don't look like this, so what does that mean for us? No, I mean, I mean, Chapel was in the middle of one of the most affluent communities in Houston, right? Uh, a lot of these folks are white folks who have abundant resources. So your your job is to figure out, okay, so what do we do? Uh, given the kind of makeup we have, right? And I recognize that there are a whole bunch of hindrances to making that happen. First of all, folks may be scared to drive to get here, make it get pulled over. We've dealt with that. You know what I'm saying? We've had that, literally. Oh, yeah. And so, but my thing is like, so my thing is like, it's okay, start where you are, decide who you're going to be. But like you said, there are myriad ways to think about ways to create, to think creatively about how I like at least create different exposures for those who want it, Right. And for those who, who desire it and need it. Like Matt and I talked about like teaching a class together, for instance. Here you can figure out, if you're really interested in this, come figure out how we've chosen to try to do this. And our work in Project Curate, uh, we, we've made an intention to like, we're going to like constantly be self-reflexive in everything that we do. Whether it's around issues of gender and class and race or whatever. We can't claim to be out here doing this work and consulting in this work if we're not constantly self-critically analyzing ourselves. Of course. Right? And that's especially challenging for two men in general, but one white man and me as a black man constantly in relationship with other folk. Mm -hmm. And so I say I like to say, like, that's the challenge, I think, as a church now is to kind of like, how do I be representative of what's going on out there while at the same time acknowledging where I am socioeconomically, politically, and what my congregation make up? Because it doesn't mean that you don't have sincere, amazing folk just because they prefer this. Mm. It's just finding on-ramps for folks to, to be exposed to. The challenge, John, is uh, with any of us, anybody who has a modicum of power, it's going to be very hard for them to kind of be willing to surrender some of that to explore these new possibilities. Because yeah. it's one thing to kind of say, I believe this, but to actually operationalize that in what we do every day is a hard thing to do. And I think starts are like this. If I don't have the expertise or the way or know how to do it, 
why don't I create room? Hire, say, a Matt or somebody else who at least can show a different way. I don't have to be the one doing it, mm -hmm. but I can bring folks in who know how to do it, right? Or create room for it. And that's, the, I think, the challenge is folks have not been creative enough to figure out how to create room for it because we're all trying to uh, maintain these hierarchical power relationships that we have. And you can't get away with it. You can't talk about religion or harmony or justice or anything without doing a thorough analysis about how you're situated on this power matrix. You know, the, the, one, of the, one of the things that really I struggle with personally right now, and maybe I have for a long time, don't know, it's that the, the church today seems to have lost a prophetic voice regarding to not just justice issues, but morality. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and, and for some reason, we don't want to speak into it. it everything is so partisan now. I look at it like this way. I love these people. These people love Jesus, but I'm trying to move them to a place of understanding. And that doesn't happen when we yell at each other on right. Facebook. Right. Right. It happens when I can sit down with these folks one-on-one -on -one and begin to examine these deeper issues of, you, you don't treat people like this. Yeah. This is not biblical. This is not scriptural. This is not 1 Corinthians. I can't tell you how many times now I'm preaching 1 Corinthians. Um, I, I think we're in a dangerous place and I'm wondering if COVID, the pandemic now wearing a mask has become a partisan hmm. issue mm -hmm. and where, whether an article I read that now churches are inadvertently being forced to choose a path. I thought that was coming actually with the human sexuality deal already, mm -hmm. which got tabled, yeah. if you will. Yeah. Um, I want you to fix all my questions here. This is why <laughs> I'm rambling the way that I am. No, that's good. No, that's <laughs> I'm wondering, what is it that, are we just afraid of losing people? Are we, I mean, the, I, I always say it's about love. I'm trying to bring everybody along because I know the influence of having everybody together is going to be a greater influence that if the church splits into two halves mm -hmm. and then splits again into two halves because you're never going to be in a place where you agree with everything yeah. or like, yeah. but I just don't understand how justice and morality now seem to be lost yeah. at, as, as a prophetic voice from the church. Mm -hmm. We just, we don't have it. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if that's, that's part of that is, is that we, we see that the church is changing so much, right? Mm. We see, I mean, for mainline denominations, since my the last 10 years, we've been talking about the loss of, you know, the decline of. And I think that that is, that has, um, there's been a constriction around how do we, how do we get the, the bleed to quit rather than to say, if we have the, the spirit of God that's gone before us in the world, what's happening in the world that we need to participate in and what does a church look like? That's why I think friendships mm. like Cleve and mine and, and, and others like it become really a, um, almost a resistance movement because they shouldn't be happening. Mm. You know, mm. There's no reason that a person like Cleve and I should have met each other ever and then formed kind of what we're forming in this church called Chapelwood you know, to be a part of that, to... Mm. to than to participate, right? So I mm. think that part of it is we're trying to figure out the church is, is always moving towards the future. And I, I wonder if that's, if that's what we're attempting to do here 
in this moment of time, even amid COVID, mm. is to say, um, what is Houston going to look like? What is the Church of Houston going to look like? That's what you've been talking about uh, for a long time, John. You know, and knowing that both the folks at Chapel would have a key part to play in that, and as it relates to connecting with other folks within the body of Christ in Houston mm. you know, and not seeing ourselves as these kind of smaller enclaves. Yeah. But how do we become a part of that wider movement of expression? Because you're right. I don't think that justice looks like a, about giving food away. Mm. It does. Mm. But it also asks a question of why are people hungry? Mm. Right. And I think that in some ways um, that's the movement of the church of the future has to begin to grapple with is not just providing food, but saying, why are there folks in our neighborhood that are hungry? I feel I've, I've, I've struggled over the last couple of years of do you just at some point you, you have to pick a lane, you have to go because some churches have. And I just have keep going to this default. Maybe it's my own baggage coming out of my own personal stuff that I'm trying to maintain this sense of unity. Mm. I really do believe in this aspirational vision mm. that you can have Republicans and Democrats, conservatives and liberals, mm. who are all over the spectrum that can yeah. be one church, one body of Christ mm. around a core set of biblical values. But it's almost impossible yeah. to make it happen. That's the challenge of, I mean, of any interpretive community, right? Because... Um, how I read those values and how they should be enacted <laughs> may be totally different. But I also think like, I mean, this is, is again, it's nothing new in the fifties and sixties, letters of Burma, all this stuff, like churches have existed along this spectrum, whether they're more priestly or prophetic. And I think if I were just honest, just on my analysis on you all from afar is you have that kind of community. You have a wide range of spectrum, Republican, Democrat, all that over I think that's the reason why you have this community expression like you have it, right? Mm. Folks have to be self-selecting in how they, your job as, I guess, the priestly role here is to figure out uh, what auxiliaries or what ways can we explore the prophetic push realm and in what ways do I have to build community? These, these are challenges that happen with every organization is there's the, the charge to build community. Then there's also the task of identifying what issues are most important to us. And it may be the case that my church uh, sits here. I'm trying to build community amongst people who are different. Yet this kind of, we're not living fully into this kind of a charge mm. of the gospel, as we say, right? And so there are ways in which different ministries have to exist to kind of explore that. And folks have to self-select into that because there are folks on this end who are ready to go here, but a lot of folks on this side of the spectrum are not ready, right? Yeah. And so there have to be different kind of containers for folks like that That's right. who are working that out. That's but right. that doesn't exist exist in churches. It exists along justice communities, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Folks are never at the same place. Yeah. You have to figure out ways. We always have to figure out ways to keep moving while we're working this stuff out. Yes. If Matt and I had to be perfect, right, we never would have become friends. First of all, like, um, that's another thing that has to be dangerous. Oftentimes, mm. progressive circles wants to overlay this stuff with friendship, reconciliation and friendship. If I can just be friends with you, this stuff doesn't have to exist. And it was huh. a bit different for us, right? The thing is like, no, I should say to Matt, like, no, we don't have to be friends to work together or to be, have the same call. Now, if while we're moving, we become friends, that's great. But by and large, 99% of folk won't become friends. They become great colleagues. They work through it. We just made a kind of like 
metaphorically, this Johnson David commitment in the beginning before we knew what that implies that, hey, we're going to commit to be friends here before we really recognize what that meant. And, and I think, you know, <clears throat> I had to go get a, a beer sometimes. That has not been e- easy for us. We had mm-hmm. to have some rough confrontations with each other, some rough situations with each other. But we kept moving forward while we were growing together, right? And, and what Matt and I tell people all the time, look, everything don't have to become this. But what you can do is commit, commit to a certain core set of values or virtues, if you don't like, um, sir, that, that we can all be committed to and, and struggling towards. And then I think what happens is friendship comes out of those missions. I think there's a reason why Jesus says, look, no longer do I call you my disciples, but now you're my friends. Because mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. are a closer group, and I reveal to you everything the Father has shown me. And here's my command to remain in my love, right, that you just love one another. But that understanding of uh of love and agape, this like selfless, uh, unabashed commitment to another person's life requires you journeying with somebody for a while, right? It's not this kind of like uh, thing that doesn't, it's not really robust and thick. I have to like see, we have to see each other in our weaknesses, our vulnerabilities and trust each other with that. And that's a deeper kind of Mm -hmm. spiritual work, right? Mm Mm-hmm. That doesn't necessarily have to happen before you, while you're struggling for. It's been five years for us now. I mean, we chose to become friends right when Trump got elected, and that caused a fragmentation there. Just so happened we had already bought tickets to go somewhere where each other couldn't get out of them, right? <laughs> so we said, Shh. so we're like, dang, we got to go now, okay. You know what I'm You're going to have to work your crap yeah, exactly, out. Right? Yeah, exactly. And over time, right, we've constantly not only challenged each other, but but the key thing you do is you move forward as you're doing that kind of stuff. Yeah. And um, that's not an easy work. It's not an easy work, but I think, <clears throat> I think it's okay. Well, so what I'm saying, John, is you're already in a place, though, that most folks who are not in power, right? That's right. Just to think about saying, man, I don't have this figure out. I'm, I still have this aspirational thing about community. That's good. I think we all possess that. Community is the goal for us. But until our community learns how to not just say people are different, but I can appreciate and learn how to imbibe that different. And I do the rough work. I, I say it all the time. Pastor work is the hardest work uh, preaching work is. Meaning uh, you have the ability every Sunday or you have the task mm. to help folks understand and transform their realities every time they come into your context. Yeah. But that's the deep work that happens along with you and your God when you bite with each other. How can I make this make sense for the community of folk that I have? You have to get, that's the pastor work is one. I got to know who I have, first of all. And who you have is different than who somebody else, some other church has. Yeah, it's always contextual. Right? And so how do I move this body to where they need to be? And that may look differently. And, and you can be okay with that. I don't, I don't mm-hmm. think like this whole notion of white guilt and white fragility, which fragility refers to this notion of uh, it's hard for me to listen or to kind of come down my thing. I, I get defensive. That defensiveness really arises from this fractured ego. Mm-hmm. Me as a white man or a black man feel like my ego's being challenged, and so I'm going to get defensive and kind of push away, right? Um, we, the only way that we, we transform that is we kind of come into ourselves and ask where that's coming from. And I think you're beginning to ask some of those questions, but, you know, we go to different kind of religious institutional settings all the time, and the truth of the matter is they want to have broad conversations about it, but they're not willing to kind of like really think about structurally what does this mean for us. Because to do so, we'd have to say, damn, that means it's time for a lot of us to surrender some of our authority and let them come up and do something. Nah, we're not ready to do that. So let's just convene and have another conversation about it. We'll bring them into the room, but we still got to kind of stake out 
our power attributes, right? And what we always say is like, man, listen, you can have both worlds, meaning being creative and innovative doesn't mean you disappear. It does mean, however, that you got to do more personal work to figure out how you fit. Mm -hmm. Because when I um, put myself in a situation where, this is what I always say, like, when you put yourself in a situation where you're surrounded by greatness, it forces you to do one or two things, either run and flee or grow and mature and figure out how you fit in that. And I think that's what we've done is we've surrounded ourselves with folk who are much more, have much more capacity, who are more brilliant, more talented than us. And so how we grow is figuring out, okay, dang, how do I fit in this? Right? How, do, how does this challenge my own kind of sense of privilege? How does this challenge me to negotiate my own capacity to, to figure out a way to fit in this? And that's where we grow uh, as leaders, I think. I surround myself with great people so I don't have to work so hard. It's just totally selfish. <laughs> it can work that way too. You know what I'm saying? It can work that way too. I also think like we're heading into a season of Pentecost, right? Pentecost is coming up after resurrection. Dude, I don't even Easter know what day season. it is today. But Pentecost is coming. It is. It's coming. <laughs> it's sometime in the future, right? Yeah. But where the church will um, celebrate the fact that the spirit of God has been poured out. Uh, and so I, um, um, I wonder if part of what the Spirit's doing in the world in these different groups is that if if I if I think that my own culture, my own way of growing up, is the only way of seeing it, right? Um, mm. What what Bertrand Russell says is every way of seeing something is just another way of not seeing something, mm. right? So if I can say I have all the answers and what I need to do is resist everybody else. That puts me in a smaller and smaller island, and I think that's where all these kind of all these lines in the sand are happening. Mm. But as we open up ourselves to become, as we've talked about before, John, that kind of spiritual discipline of curiosity. Mm. I wonder what I have to learn mm. by these folks that I don't agree with, that I feel defensive about. You know, I wonder what I have to learn if that's the first step of curiosity that says, "Oh, right." And then I find on the other side of that, every time I'm curious, that the Spirit of God teaches me something draws me closer out of myself, out of my ego defenses. Mm. And I'm stepping closer to something that is drawing me, that summonsing me, that all my life I've desired, that my own truth of being right can't get to, mm. you know? And I think that's the mystical side of what, what the Spirit's doing in the world is saying, come on, come on, just keep walking, you know, keep mm. being curious. Let's see where this leads. Cleve, before we finish, what... Um, to just be helpful in, in continuing having conversations, what what advice or direction or encouragement would you give a community like Chapelwood? Um, we've talked about some of these things, but as you're just thinking, you know, what do I make sure we don't leave here today without you sharing with us as just a, a word of encouragement, admonishment, whatever it may mm. be? I just think like two things. I mean, Matt hit it on you. Hit it. One, just continue to make space for uh, people to be exposed to, to encounter and exchange with difference and different perspectives. And also, one, I think, learn how to be self-critical. Not say, "Hey, I'm hearing something I disagree with," but then be- to go further and say, uh, "But why? Am I willing to interrogate why I disagree? Mm-hmm. Right? What shapes a kind of certitude I have? This desire for me?" Um, to be intransigent and say like, no, I'm right, they're wrong. I'm gonna listen to what they say, but I know I got this right because I, you know, 
I have this figured out. And why can't we lean into the Pauline ethic that says I too have the spirit of God? Meaning, <laughs> is it something that we can learn from these communities mm. uh, that maybe uh, a larger spirit at work in this world is trying to get us to kind of pay attention to, right? To always like lean with a kind of humility to say, I want to put myself in, in different spaces. It's, it's why my conversation with my friend I always have is like, I always push myself, right, to defy any type of boundaries and labels for myself, right? Depending on the space I am, that's fine. Some people may need to know me as reverend, others as doctor. Other, most of my friends just call me Cleve. But my thing is, that's a healthy tension for me personally because who are you when you take away your titles and how yes. one community sees you, right? Mm. When you're alone or when you're at a space where you don't occupy power and position, how do you negotiate that space, right? When I go into a space where folks don't know me as John the Pastor of Chapelwood, those I think are the place for personal growth for us. And I think, um, especially when you have access to elite privileges and, and power, it's hard to step down for a minute and just appreciate hearing perspectives that I may not have heard, recognizing that if I can assume and extend the benefit of the doubt to everybody, say, hey, that we all come from this sincere space, that we want to see the reign of God actualized, right? What are the problems that this community might raise that I need to know and hear about more, right? And there's mm -hmm. nothing with constantly challenging a community about that. While I recognize we may not ever get there together in agreement right now, but how we're unified is this. We recognize that we're having these conversations about it, but more than that, there's a group of you who may self-select and say, I want to actually do something. If you want to be a part of that team, do that and recognize our role in there. So, I mean, I would just say continuing to do this, right? Open up spaces where you bring, uh, through this medium at least, uh, the ability to kind of hear from different communities in this space, right? Or what other space that you've carved out to where difference can be heard, yeah, yeah. right? But then two, look for pragmatically programming that actually does something. There's nothing, you need to continue to feed the brown communities or whatever. I think zip code 77084 is the most, has the most COVID infections right now, which is not mm -hmm. too far from here, right? That's right. Uh, but figure out other ways to do it as well. Recognize there's gonna be resistance, uh, but just keep pushing. That, our job is just to keep pushing. Yeah, one of the things we had talked about it was having a, <clears throat> like a, a, a gathering to have conversation, have you come and have our people come and begin yeah. to have conversations just to, to be open. Uh, last thing I'll say is we live in a, in a, our, where we find ourselves in our culture right now is in this, um, culture of, of certitude. Mm, that's true. That's mm. true. And everybody thinks what they think mm. and that's mm. what they think. Right. And social media to me exists as a platform to just reinforce your certitude because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. it's just populating itself automatically with everybody that agrees with you. Yeah. You yeah. know? Yeah. And, um, <laughs> and I, I just, I think, uh, I keep coming back to the word humility and yes. curiosity that's good. and vulnerability. And that's the way of Christ, not this, this certitude, this best pride. It's uh, it's vain glory. You know, these things that we just hold on to. Um, and I get it. You know, no one likes to have the, the earth move beneath them. Right. Yeah. Right. But it's right. like we learned with uh, Hannah last week. I found that all my sermons now are related in very pastoral Mm. ways is mm. that it's only only emptiness 
uh, is a prelude to fulfillment. Yes. Mm. And it's not until we experience some emptiness. It's like, but we live in a culture where we have to move from fullness to fullness to fullness to fullness. Everything has to always be full. And until we let some things go and recognize that there's things we can learn, things that I have always known that may need to be questioned. If I don't empty some of that out, I can never have anything new that comes in to, to fill it. So I'm looking forward to the day when we can actually have people meet together again <laughs> and have these kinds of conversations because I think they'll be tremendously helpful uh, because Chapelwood and I think any church, whether they want to go willingly or not, mm-hmm. you're going to have to live in a city. Houston's the city of the future. It's the most diverse city in the United States. Mm-hmm. It's only going to get more diverse. Yeah, And we need to learn to be a church that's not building walls around us to kind of maintain a status quo, but to be a community where there's a bridge built, not just of things going out to where there's need, but both ways, the conversation. So that's good. Well, man, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Will you come again? Of course. Because there's never enough time to talk about all the things we want to talk about. I'm John Stevens. And I'm Matt Russell. And I'm Cleve Tinsley. And this is Pod Have Mercy.